Hello, I'm Liana, and I'm doing the Bible reading tonight. And tonight's Bible reading comes from Luke 12, 35 to 48. Hold on. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at, the hour, at what hour the thief was coming, he would have let his house be broken into. He would not have. Yeah, that makes more sense. Okay. <laughs> I have read this before. Oops. Okay. Verse 40. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for the servant whom the master finds doing, doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the ser servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat his men servants and maidservants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. See what he has for us tonight. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to learn from your word. Please open up our hearts to receive it and open up your word for our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. One of the incredible quirks about being human is that we have the ability to maintain two distinct and contradicting lines of thought at the same time. This is one of my favorite hobby horses and coincidentally, one of Jesus' favorite hobby horses. His favorite criticism to direct at the Pharisees is that they are hypocrites, saying one thing, doing another thing. That is a fact of sinful humanity. The fascinating human brain can hold on one hand that something is very important and needs to be done as soon as possible. 
and also at the same time that it is not very important and can be afforded to be done later. And this is not a small problem. This bizarre self-deception is the cause of a lot of human misery. The smoker who is always going to quit after this last pack. Or the gambler who will leave the casino after they just break even. Or the independent child who will visit their parents once they get some free time. We have in us this amazing capacity to say one thing and do something completely different. And here is Christ en route to Jerusalem where he knows he will be caught killed and then raised from the dead. He knows that he will command his disciples to prepare for his return and then leave the world until he comes again at his second coming. And he speaks to his disciples and to the crowd with such insistence and repeated emphasis on this point that it's almost impossible to miss the main thrust of what he's saying. Be dressed ready. They must keep their lamps burning. He must find them watching. Find them ready, be ready, because he'll come at an hour they don't expect, come on a day they don't expect. Christ might have said, I'll be coming around a second time, keep an eye out, and left it at that. But the Son of God knows who he's talking to. He knows who he's dealing with, humans. And he knows humans are fickle and inconsistent, and he knows that we're very good at saying we'll do something and then not doing it. So he doesn't give a vague command that we can easily put off. He wants the listeners to internalize this, to live the truth of it. He's going away, and he commands them to live as if he's going to duck back in at any moment. Now the first part of this passage, verses 35 through 40, is Christ's forewarning for anyone who might be tempted to go, be busy for a while, I can afford to be faithful later. He paints these two images to demonstrate his point. We have these servants with their lamps lit, vigilantly waiting for their master so that they can open the door on the first knock when he returns. It's that kind of readiness you need when you're microwaving a bag of popcorn. You can't just set that for three minutes and walk away. Not unless you like that gross kind of singed brownish popcorn. You've got to wait until that button is... Actually, the button's irrelevant now that I think of it. You wait until there's less than one pop per second. That's it. <laughs> and then you press that button because you've got to be vigilant about that kind of thing. Or it's the readiness that firefighters have. While they have that slidey pole to go down because stairs are too slow when they're needed. That's the kind of readiness Jesus expects of his people. And the second image flips that around, flips the characters around. Now the faithful listeners are told to be like the master of a house, expecting a break-in. And they are expected to be as ready to welcome the Son of Man's return at any time, as surely as the master of a house should be ready to chase off a thief at any time. It's at this point that Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And this is an important question, one that we should get into the habit of asking when we are reading scripture and we hear Jesus give his disciples a command. The intended audience unlocks a lot of the difficulty we may encounter in applying God's word, and particularly when Jesus gives these commands. So Peter asks, is this a disciple thing or an all-around thing? And Jesus gives more than an answer. He doesn't just tell Peter who, but he tells 
him how. How we are to be ready, what it looks like to be ready for his return. Because the answer is yes, this parable applies to everyone. And Jesus, in his examples, gives us a picture of the ideal servant of God. Trusted with much and found faithfully attending it when he returns. And then three less impressive servants. Three examples of a failure to be ready in the manner that Jesus is commanding. Now, the first of these failed servants fails because he does not fear God. He fails because he does not fear God. He somehow weaseled his way to the top of the pack. He has a responsibility over many other servants, but clearly no respect for the master himself. And while the master is away, he abuses the servants under his charge and gorges himself on the food and wine he's been trusted with. His only concern is not getting caught. He decides the master is away for long enough that he can live to break the rules however he likes. There's no respect there, no real loyalty. The servant is only there for the perks and a nominal commitment to serving. But only in so much as he can gain pleasure and avoid pain. But his master is no fool. He comes home, he catches the servant. Scripture says that he will be cut in half and placed with the unbelievers or the faithless. And the implication is clear. It's because this servant is faithless. What do you call a servant who doesn't serve? A joke. I had the unpleasant experience recently of attending a going away party for a friend of mine. Good friend, moving to Western Australia for a job opportunity. Um, went to high school with him. He introduced me to my youth group when I was younger. Hung out with the same chaplain, went on the same camps. Good guy. And the party itself wasn't terrible. And so that's not why I say it was an unpleasant experience. It's just that we chatted on that night. And I asked him, you're going to hook up with the church when you get there. You're going to you know, look around, find a nice new church community to hook into. And he says, oh, yeah, if I find one I like. One you like. The same answer could have been given if I'd asked him about a gym membership or a favorite pizza joint. I knew at that point that my friend had no fear of God. You can't know the true and living God and just not care about the kingdom and the community of his people. Now, some folks have terrible personal experiences with individual churches and they struggle to reintegrate with the church community. I don't mean that. I mean when you claim to know the creator of the universe, the author of life and the savior of your soul, and you are completely ambivalent about the whole issue. And I might never understand how someone can be exposed to almost the same gospel-charged influences that I was and not really care that much. And for a lot of people sitting in chairs in a lot of churches, the idea that one day the Son of Man will in fact return to the earth to judge is just not a reality that's been internalized. It has no impact on them. They look like servants, but they're really a bad joke. Faithless. And the only hope that they have is that the Holy Spirit will touch their heart 
and bring them to life and a real understanding of who Jesus is and maybe that then their hearts would match the outward appearance. Until they learn that fear of God, they can't possibly be ready for his son's return. And the second failed servant fails because he doesn't obey God. Verse 47 says, he knows the master's will. He gets it. He is informed. He is a genuine servant who recognizes the authority of the master. But he doesn't act on what he's been told. He either doesn't expect to suffer for it, or expects someone else to take care of his duties, or maybe he fully intends to get ready at some point, but is just kind of lazy. The master in this case comes home, finds the slack servant hasn't done his job, and beats him with many blows. Now I feel kind of bad for this one. My housemates and I had a house inspection on the 26th of the previous month, and you better believe we weren't ready on the 24th. We were ready on the 25th, sort of, more or less. That was the deadline, though, and I know it's good to keep the house clean before that. I know it would be less stress to get it done throughout the year rather than all at once. I'm not blind to the fact that it is easier to maintain a clean house than clean a messy house. But, eh. Now, if the real estate agent had called me and told me, the owner of your house is coming for an inspection. He's coming at an unknown hour, like a thief in the night. And if you have not made ready, you'll be beaten with many blows. <laughs> I like to think I'd find another gear and get the job done earlier. So really, it's their fault I live like a slob. The servant in this story is content to be idle. He knows what the master wants and he just doesn't do it. And there are many folks in many churches who believe in Jesus as the risen son of God who really know that. They understand he died to take away their sins. And they know that he commands them to go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. But, eh, it's a spiritual slothfulness that makes obedience seem unappetizing. I spent many years in the back row of this church doing as little as possible every Sunday or every other Sunday when I got around to it. And there was conviction at work in my heart. I knew the Spirit of God was speaking to me. I knew I was supposed to start really obeying and really following that when you're comfortable where you are, it's very easy to rationalize laziness. When you are comfortable where you are, it is easy to use excuses to get out of obeying God's uncomfortable commands. Now, I was never beaten with many blows. And the imagery of physical punishment is not actually the point of this passage, so it's important we don't get caught up in it. We're told clearly by the gospel that we are saved by Christ's righteousness or damned by our sins. So we mustn't see this as God delivering a kind of a spiritual once-off suffering before opening heaven's gates. This passage is about what God expects from us. And the punishments the master delivers in the parable don't stand in for divine punishments, 
but they do cry out to us about what God really cares about and what he really expects of us. We're saved by grace for falling short of a perfect expectation. So we won't be beaten with many blows before we get into the kingdom at the end of days. But I have no excuse for that wasted idle time. And one day I'll stand at judgment before God and thank him for overcoming my disobedience as early as he did. Is my weakness able to foil God's plans? No. Am I going to be cosmically beaten for falling short? No. Does it matter to God if I take seriously the responsibility he's given me? Yes. And it should matter to me. A good servant doesn't just know his master's wishes, he follows through on them. And he doesn't need a deadline to force him to action. All he needs is that obedience. If we are to live lives ready for Jesus' return to us in the last days, we have to obey God. And the final servant fails because he does not seek God. He's ignorant of what he's supposed to do. He must know the master is coming back at some point. He's a servant, after all. He's still hanging around. But when the master returns, he has nothing to show because he just plain didn't have any idea he was supposed to do anything. This doesn't get him off the hook. The master gives him a light thrashing in this parable. Why? If he has no idea that he was meant to do something, can he be held accountable for not getting it done? Shouldn't someone have told him? At the beginning of this semester of Bible college, I was looking forward to the philosophy intensive. So we're doing two weeks at the start uh, of the semester, all day philosophy every day. That's my jam. I was ready for that. Um, <laughs> woo! So on the first day of college, I was keen to get stuck into that content. And then I was deeply dismayed to learn on the first day that the first piece of assessment was due three days before classes started. At first I consoled myself thinking that was a rather rotten trick to play on a fellow. But the course outline was only ever a few clicks away. On reflection, I have no excuse. I'm a student, it's my job to know when my essays are meant to be due, and not knowing that accordingly is actually my fault. And as servants of God, it's our responsibility not just to fear and obey God, but to seek his will. Not just to obey his commands, but to seek out his will, to pursue and serve him as faithfully as we can. And there are a lot of people in a lot of churches who say, I don't really know what God wants for my life. And the response that needs to be lovingly offered, and it sounds like a smug, off-handed remark, but it really is the core of the issue, is, have you asked him? It's very hard to know the will of God without good spiritual disciplines. A follower of Christ learns the will of God by studying the word of God and with a persistent prayer life. 99 times out of 100, when someone feels they don't know the direction God wants to send them in their life, they don't have those things very well locked down. 
99 times out of 100, the person who doesn't know what God expects of them isn't doing those things very well. And you can't know what to obey if you don't seek God to know his will. We must seek God. The passage ends with Christ answering Peter's initial question. Is the command to be ready for the return for his disciples or is it for everyone, for all the crowds gathered to listen? Jesus says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So there it is. Servants have responsibility to be ready to be executing their master's will in proportion to how much they have been trusted with. This makes sense. If the father has blessed someone with a particular amount of resources and talent, it makes sense he would be especially upset if that person squanders them. And those who haven't been so abundantly furnished with resources and opportunity to do God's will, it makes sense that less would be expected of them. But consider for a moment the bigger picture. The poorest, most socially inept, least talented guy or girl in the world who hears this message still has a duty of care and responsibility with the most important information ever to reach the ears of men and women and to pass it on. Jesus went up to Jerusalem to be captured, tormented, and executed. He rose again to promise new life and life abundant to everyone who relies on his death to take away their sins. That is the absolute bedrock minimum of responsibility that a Christian can have. The eternally saving gospel of Jesus Christ is the smallest unit of responsibility that God deals in. None of us can legitimately suggest that there is no godly purpose for our lives. Our master has a lot to do and we, the people of God, greatest and least, are the instruments he chooses to accomplish it with. If we are his servants, then we must fear God. If we genuinely fear him, we must obey him. And if we desire to obey him, we must seek his will. It's how we prepare for that wonderful day when he will come again. Jesus is talking about himself as our master. He makes such good promises for his return. He says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Do you see the reversal of roles? The servants in the parable are eagerly waiting to serve and as soon as the master gets there, he sits them down and insists on serving them. This is the incredible thing about our God and our relationship and our relationship to him as servants. Because God does not need servants. Every other king, every other emperor or lord in the world has servants and is nothing without them. The greatest generals in history are nothing if no soldiers follow their commands. But our God is all-powerful. He doesn't actually need us to get his will done. He wants us to be servants not because he needs someone to serve him, but because that kind of serving that he wants is a function of love. And it's shown best in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that God has not just a king's heart, but a servant's heart. And that's why when the master comes back, when the servants are there ready to serve, the master starts to serve them. That mutual service is the kind of thing we see in our most devoted friendships, in our marriages, in our devotion to church, family, and community. We are here to fear, obey, and serve God because those actions help us to become more Christ-like. And in the process, they keep our hearts keenly attentive to God's will and ready to receive Jesus when he does come again. We are so blessed because we serve a king who first served us and will serve us in the last day. And if we know him and if we love him and if we call him Lord and Master for all he's done for us, then the least we can do is be ready for when he comes again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your son Jesus, both for the saving work he has done, securing for us heaven, but also for the example that he gave us in teaching and in his life. Help us to honor you by being ready for your son's return, to live without hypocrisy, believing your words as we read them in your scriptures, faithfully living them. Teach us to be faithful with the talents and opportunities and gifts you've given us so that on that day that we do stand before you, we might do so as faithful servants coming into the court of the servant king. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.